Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today we have a conversation with Jacob Tobiah, author of Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. Now, I really love this memoir because Jacob is just so wonderful, I think, at breaking down in a way that anyone can understand what it means to inhabit a gendered body and also what it means to express yourself in a gender that's in between or outside of our kind of binary ways of understanding like masculine or feminine. And I could have talked to them for over an hour. It was just wonderful. Yeah, I agree. It was a lot of fun to talk to Jacob. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot was or is failure and and making mistakes Hmm. and making that a part of how we live our lives. And I was also really interested in how Jacob conceptualized failure and making mistakes as part of their identity and and the book. So yeah, they were so much fun. Yeah, and also the other thing that um, I would love to say just before we transition over the interview, I appreciate the way in which Jacob attends to the messiness of not only figuring out your identity, but also dealing with the other relationships in your life. I think they write really beautifully about the complex relationship they had with their parents while kind of coming into their own gender and and rebirthing themselves. So I loved that. Yeah, also their nails were truly yes, spectacular. Some point. Yes, for sure, oh, for sure. Beautiful nails. <laughs> okay, let's cut right to that conversation. Let's do it. All right. We are really excited to have Jacob Tobiah in the studio with us today. Jacob is a gender nonconforming writer, producer, and performer who's based in Los Angeles. Their writing and advocacy work has appeared in the New York Times, Time Magazine, The Guardian, and Teen Vogue, among other publications. They join us today to talk about their debut memoir, Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. So first, let me welcome you to the show, Jacob. Hi. Let's open it up because this memoir is different than other kind of trans or gender nonconforming memoirs that we've received in the past. And Mm. you kind of opened it up Mm. by saying that this is not going to be what you call, and I love the kind of cheeky way that you call this out, the classic trans narrative TM, like in the trans tipping point, copyright. And what you're talking about there is that it's not a narrative that's going to be fixed in trauma and then resolved by a reintegration into the gender binary. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the classic trans or gender nonconforming narrative and why it was important for you to do something that was different? Oh, totally. So, you know, I think with pretty much any kind of struggle for human rights, civil rights of any kind, what happens is that you have this whole apparatus, especially in progressive movement building, of messaging that kind of swoops in and helps, in air quotes, you know, helps build a story that is sort of the most understandable and the easiest to relate to and the least complicated. The assumption being that everyone is dumb and people are stupid and they can't understand something complicated. Um, And that it's totally foreign to them. Right, that it's totally outside of their experience, that the average like viewer or listener or reader is an idiot and that we must cater to the idiot because they're too dumb to possibly understand complicated trans stories. Mm-hmm. And call me radical or whatever, or maybe optimistic, but I don't think people are stupid. I actually think people are pretty smart. I think most people are pretty smart. Yeah. And that people can understand that generally people are able to rise to the level of understanding that you 
expect of them. Mm -hmm. I think people are incredibly adaptable. I think people have the ability to understand things vastly outside of their experience if you just don't go in with the assumption or the self-fulfilling prophecy even that people are not going to be able to understand this because it's quote-unquote too complicated. I'm curious, did the publishing industry push back at that? No. People really? were really they into just accepted it. it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so it's funny because when I first sat down, the part of the book that is now titled A Quick Manifesto with Man <laughs> Italicized, and I put pun intended after that in case you didn't get it because I'm a monster. <laughs> uh, I'm just a little I'm just a little gremlin. People are like noted author and gremlin, Jacob Tobias, <laughs> creeping out from under their trans bridge to make a dad joke. Make yeah, I was gonna like, say, like make a little pun joke. Yeah, like you know, people are like, what does non-binary mean? And I'm like, basically I wear high heels and I make dad jokes, okay? Like, that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> that's like all you need to know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel like what went on to become that was the introduction for my original book proposal. And so when I wrote mm-hmm. it out and sent it out to publishers, like, I remember I sat down to write out, like, the classical trans story, my brave transgender story journey, <laughs> Mad Lib. Yeah. Let me ask you, as you understand it, what is the trans story TM? What is the classic... You explained it in yes. the book, but let's explain it to listeners who've not read the book yeah. and to make it a point of reference. Yeah. So in kind of a pithy way, the classical trans narrative trademark is what the trans community has been allowed to share about ourselves. It's basically what the entire media apparatus has taken trans experiences and boiled them down to. So it's basically mm. what cis people and some trans people, but mostly cis people, have said, this is the version of your story that we like, and we're going to propagate this over and over and over again. And then mm-hmm. some political messaging person probably came in and said, yeah, no, this one checks out. And <laughs> basically what the narrative is, is just it's what people know, right? It's the I was born in the wrong body and I knew it from the moment I was born and all my memories in childhood were of trauma and I'm going to share all of my traumas around gender with you in order to prove that this is serious, right? Because you don't believe that my identity matters or is real and so I have to share all this trauma with you for you to actually take my identity seriously after we establish a nice foundation of trauma upon which you will be able to then respect my identity. I will share my inspiring story of coming out preferably once, maybe twice (laughs) to, you know, my nuclear family, their response, which hopefully will involve more trauma again. So you get that this is serious, that transness is real. And then now I've transitioned fully. I fit the binary on the other side, right? Like I was born male and I've always knew as a woman and now I'm a full woman, right? And everything is fine. And I got all the surgeries and did all the hormones and did everything, right? And now I fit back in this neat little box of womanhood. And the whole idea behind this classical trans narrative and why it's really insidious is, well, a few things. One is that it really prioritizes getting back into binary boxes of gender. It idolizes the idea of being a man in a traditional sense or a woman in a traditional sense and typifies exactly what the bodies that those must inhabit look like. Like if you're going to be a trans woman, you better transition, quote unquote, all the way so that you, quote unquote, fit. And I mean, it's so obvious why that logic is terrible for trans people, and especially because it's out of step with most trans people's experiences. Even binary trans women, lots of binary trans women only choose to do certain steps of transition medically. Not everyone, quote unquote, goes all the way. And the idea that you must do a certain level of transition in order to count as trans enough Mm -hmm. or in order for your womanhood to matter is predicated on an anti-trans world, one that's constantly trying to invalidate you. We should live in a world where you say, I'm a woman, that's how I understand myself. My medical transition and how I've decided to do that is actually none of your business unless you're my doctor. And 
I don't owe you any sort of quote unquote completion, right? Yeah. Transitioning is not like getting a degree. You know, there aren't like course requirements. You don't have to check these seven boxes before you get your diploma. I'm a 4.0 transgender person. Right, right. You know, because I feel like I spent a lot of time under that narrative feeling like I was like a 1.5 GPA. I was about to fail all my classes because I didn't have the same story Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to have as part of the trans community. So can we talk about this particular aspect? Because I obviously, and I know that the two of you are friends, but I follow Alok Vaidmanan's work and yeah. for a number of years. My baby. And their work has really helped me to think differently about both the binary, mm-hmm. about trans experience, and also about in kind of a larger way, which I've always been engaged with in my own kind of like me-search journey through like queer studies, intelligibility. And I mm. think that... The gender non-conforming thing is because it doesn't conform, right? There is, mm-hmm. in some ways, the pressures that you're talking about on kind of trademark trans narratives mm. are you must conform to one side or the other. The slippage is something that we'll find interesting and we can narrate that, but it's right. like you got to start somewhere and then you got to end up definitively somewhere else. Right. So can you talk about what the, I guess, the experience of being gender non-conforming? Because mm. I love the way that you talk about your relationship to gender. You describe mm. it as an onion and both because yes. it's layers, which I was getting, and then you're like, it's also smelly and like sometimes <laughs> it makes you cry yeah. and like but sometimes it's the best you condiment. You can caramelize it. Yeah, you can caramelize <laughs> it. So can you talk uh, a, butter, a little oil. bit about how you negotiated that mm. kind of, I don't even want to say in-betweenness because it's kind of like an all-aroundness. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's kind of an outsideness. Yeah. Even more than it is an in-between. One visual metaphor that I use to talk about gender a lot is the lava game. Did you ever play that when mm. you were a kid? No. no. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, that's what, interesting. What is that? So basically, it was Sounds a dangerous. Huge, <laughs> it was a huge cultural phenomenon, at least in like North Carolina, where I grew up. Like, okay. I don't know. And I feel like when okay. I give talks, like most people have a reference point for it. This is very interesting. We'll have to figure out. My next book is just going to be like the etymology of the lava of the, game. <laughs> yeah. And also like its history and like Does where. Does it include like a lava lamp? No. So oh. the way the lava game works is that you are in your house as children, yes, and then the floor becomes lava, and you can't hit the floor. If you touch the floor, you lose because you fell into the lava. So you jump around on all the furniture trying not to touch the floor. And it's every parent hates this game so much. (laughs) It is forbidden in every household, and yet kids play it all over the country. And, you know, the goal is basically to just destroy as much as you can because you're jumping all over the couches Mm -hmm. and you're trying to push each other, like, to fall. Like, it's a very (laughs) terrible, violent, bad. It's not a very good game, but also it's super fun. But I feel that gender kind of works like that, Mm. right? We have these two safe islands of intelligible manhood and intelligible womanhood where you are understood and passed socially and are digested by everybody as a man or digested by everybody as a woman. And then anyone who's not on those islands, like anyone who's not jumping on that furniture is in the lava. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. that like the moment you're off of those islands, the consequences are real and the way that you're treated completely changes. And all of a sudden everything is hot and burning around you. And the thing that's interesting to me, too, is and part of the work that I'm really invested in doing is that that experience, there are trans people who are island people. Like there are trans people who have made it onto the other island and are intelligible 
and no longer have to contend with the lava. But every, And that's their truth. And that's, that's badass. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Yeah. Like, I'm so fucking proud of you, girl. You know, and like, I'm so glad that you found what happiness is for you mm-hmm. in whatever form. Like, you know, I love any bodily autonomy. I want everyone to do what they want with their bodies. I want everyone to feel good in their bodies. I want everyone to feel good in their gender. If your truth is binary, like, that's badass. And it still is a huge, courageous, important journey. And I'm not diminishing a binary trans narrative. Yeah. I never would do that because binary trans folks, like, have... There are so many obstacles. There's still so much discrimination, all that kind of stuff. But the peak of that discrimination exists when you're liminal. Mm -hmm. It exists Mm -hmm. when you're liminal or when you're clocked, even if you're passing, and kicked off the island. And like when people understand that you are trans or someone reveals that you are trans or you're outed as trans, and then all of a sudden you're pushed back in that lava or your gender stability, quote unquote, is questioned. It's also right. to me like those moments are moments when, and I'm definitely getting this from like all of Alok's sh- story sharing via social media, is it's not about, I'm trying to think the word that they use for that. It's basically the idea is like, it's not about you. It's about them. Oh, like, of course. There's, some, there's a line that Alok uses called, I think, like, who hurt the person who hurt you? And that that's right. this way of kind of thinking about, okay, this person is angry at me because my gender presentation, which doesn't fit what they right. think of as like, it's this box or it's this box, now makes them feel like, well, what parts of myself mm. did I have to amputate? Mm-hmm. You know, my kind of like gender divergent or whatever. Yeah. And that that's where a lot of that aggression is coming. The gender nonconforming person is the one who absorbs all of that aggression. Mm. But that aggression is actually coming from the, you know, that's something that was done to the aggressor themselves. Right. It's a classical activist adage, the motto, hurt people, hurt people. And it's about how, and a lot of times that centers in, you need to do the spiritual work of healing yourself before you're going to be really good in community with others. Mm -hmm. But it applies absolutely along a broader kind of social fabric. And that's why when people catcall me or when people you know, harass me or when people give me nasty looks or whatever, it's hard because I, what would be so much easier is if I could just hate them. But Mm. all I see is this like broken child yelling. You know what I mean? Like, especially because, I mean, I I don't get catcalled by women very often. I feel like we do a really, there are some ways in which people who are raised as women are socialized that, you know, suck. But there are some things about empathy and being okay around gender difference that I think are really beautiful. And that's a product of centuries of feminist labor around gender nonconformity within women, right? I always forget. And I think we spend so, we take for granted the freedom of expression that women assigned folks have culturally and how big the gender expression possibilities are. But I always try and remind people, I'm like, there was a unique historical moment where Katherine Hepburn was the first woman to wear pants in a motion picture. Mm -hmm. Like that was a historical landmark, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that it's so far beyond, you know, our imagination these days that that could have been a landmark, that that was edgy even at the time, that we lose track of it. And I also want to spin that into the future where people will say that same thing. They'll be like, oh, the first time that a male body person non-satirically wore a dress in a motion picture was blank. I don't even know when that was exactly. I'm trying to think. Yeah, trying it must have been. I mean, well, there's like some like it hot. Right. right but where that's they, but they're, satirical. Where they're, that's like, satirical. Right. Playing with I mean, it not as a joke. Although it's funny because I feel like I watch that movie and I'm just like, I am desperate for just immense power in Hollywood because all I want to do is remake some like it hot. That would be- <laughs> oh my god can you imagine like a proper trans telling of that, <laughs> that story would be really fun that would yeah. be 
everything. Yeah. Like, there are so many movies I want to remake, and I just need infinite power in order to do it. You know? Like, the kind where you can just, like, face down, like, MGM or whoever made it and be like, I'm taking your intellectual property now. And they go, okay, you have all the power in the world. Why not? We desire that. That would but, be so fun. Right. Oh, my God. Well, like, we'll put a pin in it. We'll put it in the bike Let's come back to it. We'll come back. We'll circle back. Yeah. So it's hard because when people do mistreat me, when people have issues with my gender, it's tough also because they think in the moment, they're like, I'm making, I have a problem with you. And then I immediately turn back to them and I'm like, oh, your problem is with yourself. Yeah. And then they're like, wait, 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 you're not supposed to read me like that. You're not supposed to. No, this was about me not liking you. And I was like, no, darling, this has nothing to do with me. This right. is actually has nothing to do with me at all. Like, this is 100% about you and your childhood. Let's talk about your dad. You know, <laughs> like, like, that's what I want to do. When someone cat calls me, I just, there's only two places it comes from. And I think it's important to shift this cultural conversation because when we have a world, and this is why humor is so important in the book to me and so important as a political strategy, mm-hmm. right? Because when we live in a world where when someone cat calls a trans person, when a this guy cat calls a trans woman or a cat calls a gender non-conforming person and the perception is that that person is bullying that person with the stable cis masculine power because they are a bigot and it doesn't explain anything and doesn't give anything about their motivation they're just a bad person like that doesn't give us information to use it's also not funny and it's not interesting and it doesn't give us a solution because there are two reasons why people cat call trans folks there are two reasons why people harass gender non-conforming people one is because you had to shut down stuff in your own gender identity obviously because you were abused as a child emotionally abused physically abused whatever it was and let's talk about the fact that we can i think culturally we erase the emotional abuse that boys endure across almost every level of society right the boys will be boys mentality is literally saying abuse exists and will forever exist the cycle of abuse will continue in perpetuity mm-hmm. so it's either you been abused and you are now continuing the cycle of abuse, which we need to talk about healing because healing is the only way you fix the cycle of abuse. And the other possibility is that you want to get it. The other possibility is that you want to fuck me. Yeah. And it's either or. Sometimes it's both. It can be both. Um, Yeah, both and. Right? Like sometimes it's both and. But it's like, yeah, I feel like when someone just like when I'm walking across the street and someone's just like, what the fuck is that? I just want to turn to them and be like, hi, sir, do you want to talk about your trauma and or would you like to go home for a quickie? Like, what's your preference here? <laughs> I've got 25 a, minutes. Right, I've got 20 minutes. Full Metro card, honey. Right, like, preferably <laughs> yeah. both. You know, yeah. like, my favorite pillow talk is processing gender trauma. You know what I mean? <laughs> my favorite way to process gender trauma is in bed. So, like, we'll figure it out. Yeah. But you have to work out either the fact that you're attracted to me or you have a bunch of gender trauma or both. Wait, can I ask you, and this was perhaps too personal, but... No such thing. Okay, great. Has that been something that you've been confronted with? Where a person is intimate with you in some capacity, whatever capacity that might be, and feels like this is their opportunity to process some gender trauma. Not yet, but we're working there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the reality, too, of, I think, dating when when you have an unintelligible gender is just that there isn't even a way for people to compute what it means to find you attractive. Because the, the moment that someone thinks that my legs look hot in heels, they think oh no, I'm wrong for thinking that. Because oh. I so identify as something that yeah. wouldn't you know, find Because that like, I'm only supposed to like a particular gender in heels? Is that what you yeah, mean? Right. Okay. Like, yeah, right. Like that there's sort of the moment that someone like, thinks that I look cute in a dress, they are then confronted with the truth of their bi or pansexuality. And they're like, wait, but I'm straight. And I'm like, I don't think you are. Most uh, people see, aren't. What's happening there also is that they feel the slippage of privilege. That it's like right. my stable categories, the things that make me 
me and not them, like right. that sort of thing, I think is also what's happening yeah. in those moments. And yeah. and I think, you know, that that's a huge barrier that gender nonconforming people face when dating, especially, you know, gender nonconforming folks who are assigned male at birth. I think it's different when... No, it's not different. It's a little different when you're assigned female birth, only because I think AFAB non-binary folks, that's what the abreves are, AFAB and AMAB, for any listeners who don't know, assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth. It just gets exhausting to say to the say full the thing. Whole. So you say yeah. AFAB and AMAB, because also, like, they sound cute. But, like, I feel like for AFAB folks, there is a realm of, there's at least cultural touch points that eroticize that gender difference mm. that allow like butch or masculine of center afab folks to be seen as like sexy and also there are communities of queer women that like i think are affirmational of gender difference in a way that is that extends into partnership whereas when you look at the sort of amab side of the spectrum and this is such an oversimplification like i want to write more about this but it will require another book length work sure so just like any cutie trans folks who are listening and you're like you're oversimplifying you're correct so like you're <laughs> You're right. But I feel like, you know, on the AMAP side of things, I look to the gay community and gay guys are like, well, I'm attracted to guys. Mm. So, like, what am I going to do? And then I look to the rest of, you know, dudes and masculine of center folks. And most people are like, well, dating you would be just about as difficult and weird as being you. Like going out in public as my partner is uh -huh. just about as difficult socially as being me. This is just one quick note for listeners, which is you almost embody this like liminal state physically. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. Just so for people who haven't maybe seen the cover of your book or who've not seen you or Googled right. you. Which please call me on Instagram. <laughs> you should. You should. Would you That's describe. That's how many power in Hollywood to make the remake of Some Like It Hot. So oh this is the only way it will happen. Please follow me on Instagram. Would you describe what you look like? Yeah, well, I'll just and what you're wearing. Like, yeah, we'll give you a lay yeah. of the land. We'll do a little narration do of it. the present scene. So right now I have like, I think two day stubble. I had a flight yesterday, so I didn't bother to shave this morning. Although I never shave very cleanly because I have really thick facial hair along my neck. Uh -huh. And it's just like, I don't think the razor burn is worth the aesthetic benefit. That you know, painful. <laughs> like every person who has facial hair, like real, like big, thick facial hair follicles on their mm -hmm. Adam's apple, like above and below, they know what I'm talking about. The epidemic of razor burn along like lower neck because hairier dudes feel like they must clean shave is like ridiculous. Anyway, so I have, you know, like some nice stubble and I like my stubble too because it's, I grow my own contour. Ooh, I just, I just go to sleep and wake like up that. with my yeah. face done <laughs> and I'm wearing like a pink lip. I'm not wearing eye makeup right now because my eyes were sleepy after the flight. I have like longish hair that kind of comes down like mid like shoulder like shoulder like, yeah, yeah like shoulder a little longer and then i have a side buds that everybody knows that i you know as an honoring of lesbian tradition you know like the one side shave the, mm -hmm. with the long yeah. with the long on the other yeah. side that is like mm -hmm. that is absolutely like a queer lady haircut and i am honoring you and also skrillex i guess um <laughs> and then i have a little jean jacket on and a little a very like sort of flowy loose summery kind of orange dress with blue flower print on it i think they're orchids actually some of them are orchids some of them are other things and then cowboy boots cowgirl boots whatever cow boots and these like lethal pink glittery stiletto acrylic nails we were talking yeah. about these before before the show they're started because fabulous they're extremely beautiful they're amazing. i haven't had acrylics before in my life because i had contacts and i just didn't know how to navigate that because it's really like you can do oh. it but it's a level of skill but i got lasik recently so now i'm like i don't need to touch my eyeball every day oh congrats so i got these acrylics and they are changing my whole life they're gorgeous 
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jacob Tobaya, author of Sissy, a coming of gender story. So that should give listeners, I think, an idea of why what you're talking about, this Mm. liminal state, this being in the lava, is actually like a day-to-day experience for you, right? And and it's important to note, yeah. too, that even among non-binary and gender non-conforming people, we have different levels of how liminal we appear, mm-hmm. right? Like, there mm. are certain people, and these are the people who are, like, fetishized by the fashion industry and, like, given modeling contracts, and I'm not bitter that I didn't get one. Um, it's not too late, it seems I mean, like. it's a little too, like, 27 is old to start out with modeling, you know what I mean? Like, according to, like, what I've sure. read in, <laughs> yeah. or what I've heard on Bravo, right? Like, this is what I know. Um, Source text. Right, yeah. but, 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 but. Short like, Kate Moss can do it, I think you can do it. I'll f- we'll figure it out. We'll figure um, I want to. I only want to model like Helena Bonham Carter models, where she just like like scrunches her face up really weird, and then like that's fashion, you know. Like that's my dream. Um, but anyway, so so you know, there's. But even within the non-binary community, even within gender non-conforming folks, there there are vastly different levels of experience based on how how sort of uh, gendered your body looks. Right. Like mm-hmm. I will never not unless I do something medical, I will never not appear like a man in a dress. Right. I don't have access to androgyny. The only androgyny I could maybe look the only times I've ever been mistaken for a woman, no matter how femme I am, no matter how glam I am, is from behind. Mm-hmm. That's the only time I've oh, ever been mistaken okay. as a woman because no one can see my face or any of my features or whatever. But the moment I turn around, they're like, oh, no breasts, a bunch of facial hair you know, a really tall, like a big Adam's apple, like, okay, very like that, you know, and like hairline that's a little more male, like, okay, cool. This is a, this is a man, like a man wearing this thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are some non-binary folks who actually kind of live more in an androgynous space. And that comes with a different set of challenges because sometimes there, you know, it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Right. Where like, if you're androgynous, that sometimes confers safety. But then if people realize that you're that like, then clock you, then it's like, oh, were you tricking me? Whereas with me, there's no trick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's no, like, the moment right. you see me, you're just like, oh, okay, that's a queen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and so it, so it's interesting to name that that even along the non-binary spectrum and within the non-binary community, there isn't one, there is no way to talk about a totalized experience. Mm-hmm. There's no way to talk about a typical experience. Right. Because all these things are so nuanced and multifaceted and complicated and interesting. So, actually, I think that brings us back to your book and your childhood. Let's mm. start. Let's start there, because mm. the book starts in childhood and it ends in this very beautiful letter to your parents. What was your childhood like? You grew up in North Carolina mm. to a religious family. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what, what that was like when you were a kid. Um, well, I, I grew up in Cary, North Carolina. It's in like the Raleigh area. And, you know, grew up in a religious household. But my, my mom was like, my parents were Methodist, but my mom grew up Baptist. My dad grew up Catholic. And so they settled on Methodist. And I think the way to sort of position that politically is that in the context of Southern Christianity, Methodism is like, you know, mild, mild hot. It's not spicy. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not the worst. It's not the hottest or, or most, uh, uh, you know, homophobic or, 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 
conservative or evangelical or fundamentalist. So my church was pretty progressive um, and was actually a real source of refuge for me in my childhood, which is, you know, ironic and a lot of people find surprising, but those people just haven't been at a church long enough, right? Like churches uh, culturally have provided safe space for, or, or at least provided space for queers to express ourselves in really unique and interesting ways throughout history. Well, there's a whole gospel history of the black church, for example, mm-hmm. has lots of that, like right. a kind of a, a very tough to negotiate sometimes space for right. where it's like it's fine to queen out in certain ways and mm-hmm. like and in other ways, maybe not so much. Or and even just like, you know, the fact that everyone in a small southern town will know like, oh, yeah, the organist who has been the organist at the church for, you mm-hmm. know, t- mm-hmm. like 40 years and has never had a partner like everyone knows that he's gay. Right. And it's totally fine in this one way and totally not in this other. But it's always been this sort of subversive home for queer folks to connect to the arts in communities Mm -hmm. where being artistic um, and being socially the right kind of man is not allowed. Mm. You know, so so for me, it was like I couldn't there was a point in my life, like in fifth grade, like fourth grade, fifth grade, when people really started getting more intense about like the gender difference stuff, where the only place I could sing without shame was church, because singing in choir, like as a fifth grader was was awful like it was it was such a it was such like a faggy thing to do yeah you know and and also like have a solo nonetheless like i, I have this really funny well it's, it's funny and also sad i have this video of a, an experience of queer adolescence is also that digitizing family videos and and photos is always really complicated <laughs> because your parents are like oh fun nostalgia we're gonna revisit them yay and you're like uh-oh like you won't see what i see in this right right um yeah and so there's this video of me singing at my fifth grade choir recital in front of the whole school and i'm standing there and i look so nervous mm. and everyone's like oh stage fright and i don't know how to tell them like Bitch, I've had I haven't had stage fright my entire life. Like stages have never scared me. Like I've that is not a thing. Like I what this is is gender terror. Yeah. I'm literally just like, oh no. It's like only dawning on me as I'm singing, you know, for the whole school, like, oh shit, if I look like I'm too into this, like it'll become an issue. Whereas at church, like I sang the lead in an opera in fifth grade, you know, that my church, like that our church choir director produced, right? Like I was, I was able to sing in choir and, and all of the sort of artistic gifts that I had and the creative gifts that I had were celebrated and were for a greater good and for a higher purpose. So there's a way in which, you know, my, my childhood gender expression, like church was one of the few safe places for it. And even just a place to be sensitive and, and inquisitive and not have those things be looked at as inherently feminine or wrong for for a young boy to to do. Yeah, I, I wanted um, to kind of leap forward a little bit in terms of you you talk about your experience in college as being at once very liberating, mm. at the other hand, also quite challenging, mm. right? Um, and there's lots of experiences that like you know by the book. So it's like, we're not going to give them all away here. But um, uh, but one of the things that you talk about, and this actually comes towards the end of that section, where you talk about your gender rebirth, I think is actually the, the term that you use. Mm. Can you explain both like what you mean by that and also how you, I mean, there's things that I'm interested in, like, you know, what were you reading that helped connect you mm. with, like, that mm. journey? What um, kind of, what experiences with friends helped you along that journey? Um, so can you just talk a little bit about what is obviously a mm. huge topic? Mm. Mm. I think the the simplest way to tell it, um, and you can read the book for more, but the simplest way to tell it is, it's not that my gender rebirth at the end of college was spurned because that was when I picked up Judith Butler. 
You know, mm. it wasn't like it was that wasn't how it worked. It wasn't like I picked up Eve Sedgwick my senior year and then read it and was like, fuck it, I'm wearing lipstick. Like that wasn't <laughs> right. Yeah. Which like, you know, for some people that is the moment. Sure. But for me, I was I was really risk averse and very scared. And I stood to lose a great deal by placing myself outside of respectability politics, mm. by placing myself outside of respectability. You know, I was like, I was one of like the, you know, nominees from Duke for the Rhodes my year, right? Like I was one of the like top students in my grade, you know, like Phi Beta Kappa junior year, motherfuckers, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, you know, and I, I had achieved a ton and had, and so I had this really delicate dance where my intellect and my skills were celebrated because of my activism but there was always this kind of underlying threat of but don't take your personal expression too far because you might lose everything yeah mm-hmm. and then senior year what happened and and so you know I was reading like I was reading tons of queer theory and and been and was learning about like you know historical queer activists and figures and stuff like I you know even that started like junior year of high school I had great teachers in high school who were mm. like oh we're reading Huck Finn I'm gonna sneak you my college textbook that has a whole essay about like the homoerotics of Huck Finn right right and I was just like thanks and you know and like that's amazing yeah and like my junior year in AP US history like a we learned about like the LGBT struggle as part of US history in the class standard That's really in North Carolina um, because our because our teacher was also our GSA advisor and also an academic dean and Shane Klein was going to make sure that we learned what we needed mm. to learn but you know I, I also did like my whole research paper on which was like the big end of semester project on Bayard Rustin so I was like looking in college oh, libraries yeah. reading about him and his experience and everything he did in the civil rights movement and um, you know what it meant to be a, a gay dude working in civil rights mm-hmm. um, at a time when that was really uh, really challenging so you know I'd, I'd had all these touch points and all these people in my life who were pushing me to be to express myself more authentically but I was just too scared of what I'd lose and then senior year, like, I just smacked head first into a glass ceiling. I just yeah. hit it, and I hit it fucking hard. Because all of a sudden, the neoliberal, like, we love your, we love having you as a diverse student on campus became, you're not going to wear a suit to your job? Like, yeah. you're not going to be a dude? Like, you're, you're, you're going to, you want to go, like, do, like, postgraduate work, like, on a prestigious fellowship with, like, in heels? You know, it became it because it wasn't people who had been had four years to transform. It was just random strangers judging me and and sort of the real weight of structural transphobia like coming mm-hmm. down and and you know like on my experience. And it wasn't even when I say transphobia, people are like, well, no one said they hate trans people. And I'm like, yeah, because transphobia is not, it's not simple like that. Homophobia is not simple like that. Mm-hmm. They're complicated and nuanced. And it can be as nuanced as something like an interviewer that you're interviewing with. That was a really convoluted sentence. An interviewer that you're interviewing with. It can be something as simple as an interviewer having just subconsciously not being able to understand the difference between brilliant queer research and like just okay queer research, Mm. right? It's about them not being able to understand what it means to do unprecedented work versus stuff that's a little stale. It's about Mm -hmm. them not being able to see studying and understanding and celebrating queer and trans lives as a fundamentally uh, human and and vitally important historical and social justice project mm-hmm. right it's about them looking at someone who wants to study water into like water access in the developing world versus someone who wants to study like queer social justice movements across the world and thinking well one is more vital than the other yeah and and so anyway all this kind of came to a fore and i just like didn't get any of the things that i was working for mm-hmm. and all of a sudden i looked around and i was like well, what the fuck do I have to lose? 
And the answer was pretty much nothing because I'd lost most of it. You know, like this momentum I had been building around who I was going to be and become in the world just had crashed out and totally burned. And I was like, and and in in that, I finally got the freedom to just let my gender run wild like I should have done years and years and years before. Wait, can I ask you something else about this? Because this yeah. is something that I've thought about a lot with kind of LGBTQ people in terms of we have, this was used actually developed around kind of like gay male um, socialization and psychology, but the best little boy in the world syndrome. Yes. I think that there's a way in which queer people overperform. I mean, on the one hand, there's like the kind of like queer supremacist thing that I would say, which is that like we actually are smarter than everybody else. <laughs> but I think that that's like cultural training because like, for example, I think that queer people are probably among the best readers of the social world of anyone because it's like yeah. you're constantly policing yourself. You know exactly what like normative is, what non-normative is and all the shades in between. Right. But I wonder if that is a thing that also is both an incredible ability and a crutch because mm -hmm. there's a thing where it's like you do is as long as I can perform as the best little boy in the world as long as I can be more achieving you'll forgive all of these other things about me right. that society doesn't like right but then what what I'm listening to when I hear you say that it's like well when I knew that wasn't there for me then I actually blossomed and I found a way yeah. to be freely myself yeah it's it's like I had this wall and this is this is a metaphor I use in the book um, among 10,000 others, um, I have a metaphor problem. <laughs> uh, I apologize in advance. <laughs> but like, you know, one of the metaphors I use in the book is that it was like, a, it was like one of those videos of an above ground pool rupturing mm. that I had this and the, and the walls of the pool for me were like this respectability and this like best little boy in the world and this, this whole, I'm the star student and I'm the star thing and all these things are going to work in my advantage and then I'm going to, somehow make it through this world and make it through this life staying within this comfort zone. And then the moment that that structure failed, you know, the water and the gender was everywhere. You know, it just covered the lawn. And and yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a really true feeling for so many queer and trans folks and for so many kids of difference in any mm -hmm. sort of yes. case. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it is the sad reality where what you learn is that, like, there's a level that, that at a certain point you either have to accept perpetual and permanent tokenization, right? Mm. Or you have to forfeit some of the power that came with your respectability. Yeah. That there's no way to be the best little boy in the world without also being the loneliest little boy in the world. Yes. Yeah. You know? And without being the saddest little boy in the world. That actually accomplishing things in a heterosexist world, in a cis-sexist world, comes at the price of your soul sometimes. You know, and so it was beautiful for me because it pushed me to sort of break out of that that thinking. But also, I mean, damn, I took a long time, right? Like, I took a long time to really come around. I took a long time to even admit that I was an artist. I took a long time to get out of this idea that I needed a full-time job. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, I, I, the respectability politics got in so deep in my system. And it's because they worked so well for me. You know, yeah, like, yeah. because I spent, I, I, I spent every year of my life, basically, until I was 22 getting everything I wanted and everything I set my mind to. Mm. 
you know? And then finally, and that's that's a huge testament to also what it's like to navigate the world as a cis white man, right? With any kind of interesting, like different caveat, you know. <laughs> but but it's also a testament to like my trauma because what what me working hard was was me just denying how sad I was and denying how repressed I felt and denying how lonely I was. And you know, I always make the joke that if I had had a boyfriend in high school, I never would have gotten any college scholarships. You know, if I just had one person to fucking kiss me consistently for like a month, even a month, I would have been like, wait, I don't need all this bullshit, academic, dumb fucking validation. Who are these fucking idiots? I have a hot boyfriend. I don't care about them. I don't need to get into Harvard because I'm getting some consistent dick. You know what I mean? Like, and and I think still to this day, the moment that some partner truly scoops me up and like it makes me feel good on a regular basis, I'm going to be like, sorry, I'm not writing books anymore. And my lit agent's going to be like, please. And I'm going to be like, no, you know, you have to pay me like, or, like, you're like, y'all got to pay me some exorbitant amount of money because I have access to consistent dick and I am happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes, very much. Right. Like, and it's like, it's like, I was just like, well, I have nothing else to get validation from, so I may as well become a megalomaniacal overachiever and just like wield that ruthlessly over everybody secretly in my own head. Because mm-hmm. I always thought that. Like, I remember there was this moment in high, in college where. There was this one class, Pubball 55, that was like the big weed out class for public policy majors. And at Duke, that included business majors because we didn't have a business degree. There's only a certificate in the public policy program. So if you want to be like an asshole consultant at Boston Consulting Group, the way you had to get there was through the public policy program. And so it was me in this class with like some people who actually wanted to like do public policy and like change, you know, like actually like shift public policy and do good stuff. And then a bunch of like frat star assholes. And there were three midterms and they were all like notorious. They're the, you know, the classes that everyone gossips about, like how hard they are. And they're like, oh, you're taking that this semester. Be ready. Like, it's crazy. And the first midterm I did well. And the second midterm, I got a straight up 100. Like I broke the entire curve for the class. (laughs) And I didn't tell anybody that that was the case, but all the TAs did. And so my so I came into class one day wearing like, you know, uh, chunky Jeffrey Campbell high heels, you know, ripped up jean shorts, like a, a cut up Oxford shirt um, and like a red lip and, a, and like a ear cuff. And you I just like, so cute. oh, my God, I was such a cutie. I cannot believe I never banged anybody in college. Like it was so tragic. I was so hot in college. Um, but like, you know, I like strutted into class and I just and I realized everyone had found out. And I just had this moment of like. Yeah, take that. Um, and in some ways, that's glamorous, right? The mm-hmm. idea of like, you know, the, of like, of like Elwood stomping into the class and mm-hmm. being like, I'm better than all of you. But on the other hand, like, I really look at it and I'm like, that is not a pleasure you should seek for yourself. No. That is not a, that's yeah. not joy. That's sadness. Like, that's still trauma. It's, I'm still just flailing. And I'm like, well, my consolation prize for feeling like an outcast here is that I get a 100 on the midterm. And the, the only way, that I get any over any power over you. The only way that I get to feel what it feels like for you to isolate me is for me to work my ass off um, so that I can do this kind of weird structural cruelty to you. Yeah. This is my only avenue for revenge. And at a certain point I realized achievement is not a good way to get revenge on people and revenge itself is not very fulfilling. Can I ask you then, what was the motivation behind, of course, revenge is pretty great motivator in terms of success as you mm. as you know what's the motivation behind this book well yeah the i mean the 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 thing for me now is that i don't want revenge on people who have hurt me i just want them to heal and my hope is that this book provides um a different strategy for healing than some of the stuff that's out there 
my hope is that the sort of comedy and the levity of it, the self-deprecation, you know, the the ease of read, it provides people a way to, you know, you start the book thinking you're reading about me and you end the book reading, realizing you're also kind of reading about yourself too. Because I, ju- I just feel that in this world, like men are walking around with so much trauma, just so much. I mean, just caked and caked and caked with the stuff, caked so much with it that we think it's that, that you think it's like their actual self, you know? Mm. And, um, and I don't say that to, as if to suggest that, uh, women do not have trauma, but I feel, but to say that I feel uniquely positioned to help heal some of that. And I feel like I've learned what it means to recover from a toxic masculinity. I've learned what it meant to get that toxicity out of my own system. Mm. Cause that's the other thing God I hate about like internet social justice politics is that terms like toxic masculinity get totally misunderstood Yeah, because people think when we say toxic masculinity that we're saying men are toxic and we're saying no that masculinity that version of self-expression is toxic for everybody including the person holding it yeah. you know and so I, I do really I do really connect with healing and with joy and with reconciliation as motivators these days because those are the only sustainable ones and just in closing um, can I ask you a kind of opening out question of like mm. these because it's a memoir you're talking about a past and then a present in which like there are more opportunities or things mm. I, I want to be careful about because I don't love the kind of like it gets better because that's right. very uneven and and it depends on who you are and where you are um, but on the one hand it seems to me that we are at both a moment of like terrific possibility mm-hmm. and terrifying reality for trans and gender nonconforming mm-hmm. folks. On the mm-hmm. one hand, there are people like yourself who are, we have more kind of trans and gender nonconforming people in the media, never enough, but more than we have ever had before. Yeah. Right? So that's great. That's incredible. amazing. But on the other hand, we cannot ignore the fact that that sometimes seems to have gone with a dramatic spike in anti-trans, particularly like anti-black trans violence that consumes that community. So I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about like where you think we are right now and what you see as like opportunities and wins and like what you see as the things we still need to do? Mm. Well, you know, the, the thing that's most important for me to emphasize is that visibility is only ever a strategy. Mm. Like visibility is not the end goal. <clears throat> Right. Like I, I will not if if we live in a world where every show has five trans characters, but trans people are still being brutalized in the street and like don't have access to consistent income and don't and still overwhelmingly live in poverty and are not, you know, don't have our basic health care needs met, like then I don't care how much visibility we have. Mm, visibility yeah. is a tool. It's it's a it's a it's a step. It's not the destination. Um and so even when I think about writing sissy, I don't just because I published this book does not mean that I'm in any way done. Yeah. Um, it does not mean that we are in any way done. Like, I don't think we can, we can take a lot of time to be like, oh, Pose exists on FX. Mm-hmm. So now we can pat ourselves on the back right. and ignore the epidemic of violence against black trans women. Yeah. You know, like that, it, like, and, and people really want to do that. People are so invested in patting themselves on the back. Everyone's like, well, we put Laverne on the cover of Time Magazine in 2014. Yeah. So we're finished already, Solved. right? Yeah. And I'm like, no, darling, long-term transformation. Like this is a de- this is a movement that's going to take a century. You know, like this is the, like the horizon on this is a hundred years. Um, like I will not be alive to see the end of this movement. And I know that because that's what movements are. That's how mm. history works, you know? So I think it's important to name that visibility is not at all 
uh, an end product. And also to name that visibility increases vulnerability, mm-hmm. not the other mm-hmm. way around. Yeah. Because what's happening is that we've had this, it's like, it's like we've had this uh, kind of scar tissue as a culture and a society against trans people. And now we're doing the physical therapy to actually get rid of it. You know what I mean? Like we're doing the part where you lance open the wound in order for it to breathe or whatever. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how to make this metaphor that well. But it's like we're doing the treatment step that is actually more painful um, and increases pain and increases, uh, uh, you know, unrest and and discomfort like before it's able to be ameliorated. And so what we have to do more than ever is hold our, you know, our trans uh, siblings close to us and say, how can I help you? I know that people are more acutely aware of you than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that awareness can come with beautiful things, but it also comes with really scary, awful things. And then the last thing I'll say, too, is that I think there's a lot of I think there's just so many like white queer people and white people in general who are walking around scratching their heads about like, yeah, there's all this violence happening against trans women of color. But whatever can I do? Mm. And it's like, well, it would really help if if white people ended and worked on ending the violence that white people perpetrate against people of color, because like that's what white people can do to, to like that's yeah. what that's what white people can do in this situation, yeah. right? Like because the the only reason that that trans women of color are so vulnerable is because of the fact that that what communities of color are already under the mm-hmm. pressure cooker of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, we have to abolish prisons. That helps with it, right? Like, yeah, we have to like change our economic structures so that people of color are not systemically underpaid and not allowed access to livelihoods, right? There are real practical policy steps you can take to end violence against trans women of color. And it's about seeing all of the intersections of it. But I don't like... Um, I don't like watching as uh, as people think, oh, I'm helpless against this thing because I can't. That's not my culture or community. And it's like, no, but it's a it's a it's a culture or community that you are persecuting actively and that these systems are set up to destroy. So, yeah. like, actually, if you ease that pressure and end and like, you know, tra- like end white supremacy and create a less racist world and a less racist re- legal structure, like there will be cultural space for uh, for that violence to be ameliorated. Like, violence exists in communities because they are persecuted. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to end there. We've been speaking with Jacob Tobiah, author of Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a lovely chat. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 